the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, it's it's time to just start the show. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. <laughs> if you could just narrate the rest of it, that would be great. Just tell us exactly how we're yeah. doing. That's perfect. So, uh, welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Delsa-Williams. Paul, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great, Matt. Thank you for asking. How are you? It, it's it's very late at night. We've recorded uh, several nights in a row at this point, so we will we will make this quick, and also we will make this quick because we have a fantastic episode talking about long COVID with our guest, Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez. And you know, before we tell you about her and introduce our co-host for this episode. Paul, would you remind the audience, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We should also mention, uh, maybe you're leaving this for me, that we are joined by the amazing Dr. Avitella Oglasser, our chief of perioperative medicine at Cashlock Hospital, who helped coordinate and produce this episode and whom I'm going to turn the mic over to to tell us a little bit about what we talked about um, before we get into it. Well, it, it was wonderful to be back recording with you all tonight and, and agree. We had a, a fantastic expert um, on, on a topic that really we didn't even know about two years ago. So hot off the press discussed the latest and highest yield information covering multiple facets of long COVID, including potential pathophysiology, illness scripts, diagnoses, um, cardiopulmonary, neurocognitive elements, but also, also uh, diving into the component of the patient voice in this brand new diagnosis. Yeah, and a, and a lot of practical tips for you in the primary care office, seeing these people, especially if you don't have a, a big referral center in your area. So let me tell you about our guest, Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez. She is an accomplished academic physiatrist and professor and chair of the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at the Long School of Medicine at UT Health in San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Gutierrez is a passionate advocate for physiatry and underrepresented groups in medicine via social media channels. She is the social media editor of the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Inspired by her upbringing in the Rio Grande Valley, she is dedicated to giving back to her community by mentoring students, trainees, and young faculty and providing top-level clinical care for the underserved. In 2019, she received the Top 25 Women in Healthcare Award from the National Diversity Council and Healthcare Diversity Council. She is currently directing a COVID-19 recovery clinic, the first in South Texas, which aligns with her mission to increase access to interdisciplinary care, optimize function, and improve quality of life for long COVID. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. So without further ado, let's get on to our interview with Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez. Well, Monica, we've been chatting off air for a little while now, and I'm very excited for the audience to meet you too. So can you give them a one-liner about yourself and then also tell them about a hobby or interest you have outside of medicine? 
Okay. Uh, my name's Monica Verdusco Gutierrez. I am from Texas, born, raised, and I am a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation with also a subspecialty in brain injury medicine and also right now taking care of many patients who have post-acute sequela of COVID. And I am the chair of rehab medicine here at UT Health San Antonio. And the thing outside of medicine, it's two interesting things. Probably everyone knows I'm a runner and I really like running and I do that and post about that a lot. But the other thing that I really like is bargain shopping and including consignment and thrift type shopping. Oh, fantastic. That that is fantastic. Tell us about a recent great find. What's something you're recently proud of that you found in a consignment or thrift store? I always enjoy hearing about that. Okay, I recently found a Hugo Boss dress and it was like $10. <laughs> fantastic. That's Thank cool. you. <laughs> Congratulations. I think there's like isn't there, I, I think there's some TED Talk. Um, I don't know if anyone else has heard about this one, but it was like a TED Talk about how there's – because, you know, fast fashion supposedly not great for the environment. And they talk mm-hmm. about like some of the more expensive like well-made stuff just like lasts a very long time. So uh-huh. maybe maybe that Hugo Boss dress, it was expensive at one point, but it's it's still lasting. Now it's $10. Great find. Very excited right. for you. <laughs> Thank you. We're saving the planet. You look good. It's I mean, all of it's great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so I, my, my usual question is for a book recommendation, but I, I'm, I'm happy to expand things because that, that makes people panic so much. So I'm willing to take a book, movie, TV show, album you've listened to any, any piece of culture that has been a distraction to you lately. Cause I, I certainly would love to quiet my brain. So any recommendation I will take. So I will also tell you my most recent books that I've been reading have been based on ones I go on runs and you know, they sometimes have those little free book boxes and I'll run to the free book box <laughs> and see what they have to offer there and then run back home with it. <laughs> That's kind of the book that I'm reading right now. One, It's a historical nonfiction about the time before World War II when Hitler was coming into power. It's by Eric Larson. And how much distance between the free book box and, and home? Like, I'm just wondering how. <laughs> it was about two and a half miles, okay. actually. That, that's a hike for some historical nonfiction. Yeah, I, you may not remember this. You actually, I think you gave me running advice on Twitter because um, I, I mentioned complaining about my IT band. And you're like, you need to strengthen your glutes, stat. And I was like, oh, okay. So like, I was, I was actually very grateful for it because I. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the treatment. Yeah, I, that was Paul, me. And, and Paul, I believe uh, that the, the the update was that hip was getting better. Is yes, that correct? 100% absolutely true. And I ran the marathon <laughs> shortly just, thereafter. Yeah, didn't you just run the Philadelphia Marathon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, congrats. How did I it go? I saw that on Twitter. Thank you. It, it, well, we, we will make this, we'll make it a little bit about me. No, that was my first and possibly only marathon, but it, it went, it went as well as I would have hoped. I, I, I made my target time. I finished. Um, and those were the two things I was shooting for. So it was good. Thank you. Congrats. We're also proud of you, Paul. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And with strength and glutes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glutes are looking better than ever, Paul. Thanks. Actually, I appreciate that. I was hoping you'd notice. <laughs> I feel like the next Curbsiders clinical exam series is going to be all about the glutes. <laughs> That's it. There's going to be it. so We're much due. to talk about. We're due. It's the biggest muscle in the body. <laughs> Avi, did so you want to ask brain. anything before we get <laughs> sure. on to? <laughs> um, I always like the the question about tell us uh, tell us about uh, some meaningful advice or feedback that you've that you've received during your professional journey probably the most meaningful advice that I've had 
is to just go for it. And I kind of feel this is for people who have imposter syndrome or especially women in medicine where you they say women are not going to go for a job when they don't meet 100% of the criteria whereas you know men will go for a job when they meet only 60% of the criteria and i think i've even seen that in myself and that probably um caused me to not be promoted because I didn't go for it when I probably should have gone for it. And there was no harm in trying to go for it anyway. So what's that? A year of delay, a year of less pay, you know, and uh, even for the job that I'm in now. So said, what is it going to hurt to go for the job? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're not going to lose your current job if you don't get this other job. And, you know, it all worked out. So Fantastic advice. Well, thanks um, for sharing that. Yes. Before we get on to the main show, Avi, did you have a pick of the week? Since you know you're not on as on air as often, I figure I don't know if Is you have one saved up. <laughs> uh, no, no, do I have anything saved up? Um, you know, I'm going to go with something very current. I am almost finished reading 400 Souls, which is an anthology compiled by Ibram Kendi and um, Keisha Blaine. It's actually I will hold it up for those on the recording. It is, uh, I've, I've personally made a lot of effort. I've been very intentional about more diversity, equity, and inclusion reading in the last two years. And this is my current read along that, that very important theme. So it's the 400 souls is it pulls from the fact that there has been slavery in this country since 1619 for 400 years. And it's an incredible anthology um, of themes uh, in a chronological order across those 400 years and with really just powerful tie-ins to, to current state of racism um, and the the challenges that Black Americans continue to face in 2021. So highly recommend it. I think I, I like the point you made about like trying to be more inclusive because if you're not careful, like you might just end up picking books. Like may, it, maybe it's just a product of like who's recommending the books to you, but it's like, it's a lot of books written by white men out there for me. So I'm like looking, I'm like, oh yeah, like the last five books I've read have all been written by white men. I should probably try to be more intentional about this too. It's a good, it's a good point. Same about the ones in the free little book corner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my, my sub, my sub pick of the week is just if, curate your reading list. I think Twitter has been fantastic for that. And and we will provide the Twitter link for our, our guest Twitter account in the show notes. Um, I know local bookstores, local Black-owned bookstores uh, have fantastic Instagram accounts and, and recommenda- recommendations for re-releases or new releases. Uh, Powell's, which is in Portland with me, has really well-curated minority author lists. And if I'm looking for a new read, I definitely go to them first. Walk through like several city blocks worth of books in, in Powell's. Paul, did you have a pick of the week before we get on to the main topic? Nothing burning this time around. I mean, I could always bring up something, but we can. I think we have enough meat in this episode that we should probably just move on. Okay. Hey, listeners, I'm so excited to tell you about our sponsor tonight, Blue Land. My wife and I have been geeking out over their cleaning products for over a month now. We were so excited to receive their clean essentials kit. You know, because Blue Land solves a big problem for this planet, one that I'm worried about, and I know a lot of us in medicine are worried about, it's the fact that plastic is basically destroying the oceans and just everywhere, including probably getting incorporated into our bodies. And, you know, an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year. But Blue Land's 
revolutionary refill cleaning system is going to help get us out of this mess. Because a cleaner planet starts today by eliminating plastic waste. You buy a bottle once and you refill it forever. And their products are beautiful and easy to use. You just fill a bottle with warm water, pop in one of the hand soap or spray cleaner tablets. And within minutes, you have a powerful cleaning product with incredible scents like agave and lavender eucalyptus. So please do yourself a favor and check out Blue Land because right now you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash curb. That's 20% off your first order of any Blue Land products at blueland.com slash curb. One more time, blueland.com slash curb. Our sponsor today is the American College of Physicians. And guess what, everyone? It's time to start thinking about the Internal Medicine Meeting 2022 in Chicago, Illinois. It's happening from April 28th to 30th, and we're going to be there live in person. I would love to see you. Come up and give me a hug. Actually, give Paul a hug because, you know, he secretly loves that sort of thing, no matter how much he tells you he doesn't. And we are so excited to get back there in person. As we've said many times on the show, the biggest dilemma for us about going to the ACP conference is there are so many great sessions that it is hard for us, even with a team, to, to get to all of them and figure out just what pearls we should put on air for y'all because it is jam-packed. You got to be there. You know, I recommend you come and hang out, but if you can't be there, ACP does have virtual access available for select live stream and recorded sessions and CME and mock, so check that out too. For early bird discount, make sure you register before January 31st, 2022, and use the code IM22CURB. That's IM22CURB. So go to annualmeeting.acponline.org and register today to get the best pricing and bonus content. So why don't we get to the case, Avi? All right. So we have two cases from Cashlack Memorial today that we hope will lead us into a really robust discussion about this emerging clinical challenge. I, out of respect for our for our patients and friends and colleagues who may be experiencing long COVID, I, I tried not to get too silly with um, with our with our patient names today. But I'll start with case one. Patient Sarah S. Covey is a 45-year-old woman who was diagnosed with COVID almost a year ago exactly, December 2020. And what she says is that her symptoms were initially mild, three days of low-grade fever, some nasal congestion, mild cough without dyspnea. She never needed to go to the ER or urgent care or any other higher level of care. And she felt that she recovered at home within a week and and stayed home until she finished her isolation. But by mid-January, so about 11 months ago, she developed a recurrent cough and mild dyspnea. Her primary care clinician did a chest x-ray that was normal. And then she's continued to have dyspnea, sort of an activity-induced cough, and really significant fatigue that's affected her ability to exercise as well as be active at work. And then by March, she felt that she just had no and she's going to do air quotes, get up and go, spending hours a day on the couch or in bed, and starting to feel lightheaded and um, and with palpitations whenever she stood up. She comes to you saying she saw a news article about the opening of a long COVID clinic at Cashlack Memorial, and she's interested in seeing if she's eligible for a referral. So let's do this. Let's start off with like taking a big step back. 
what is long COVID? And we're using the terminology long COVID, but, but is this even the right terminology to be starting off with? So there's lots of terminology. So that's a great question. So long COVID, this is going to be the syndrome that's characterized by varied persistent symptoms that patients have after having an initial COVID infection. I think there is just depending on what site you go to, what it's called. So the CDC also has you know, post-COVID conditions, and they say these are new symptoms that can happen. And it's, you know, they say four weeks or more after having COVID. So if you had COVID and then you're still having symptoms four weeks later, then that's going to be a post-COVID condition. And then we have a formal name that the NIH came with, which is the PASC or the post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2 PASC. And then this was what they announced in February 2021 saying, okay, these are sequelae that are going to occur after you've been infected. And then on top of these two major organizations, now we've had the World Health Organization that's come out and also has their own definition. And they're saying post-COVID conditions can occur in people who had COVID or probably had COVID because we know at some points testing wasn't great and people weren't even able to get positive tests at the beginning, if you think March you know, 2020. And usually symptoms occur within three months. And so it can be up to three months that they're saying this occurs and they last at least two months. So a little bit different with timing compared to some of the other definitions. And probably another, you know, kind of term you might hear is long hauler. I'm not kind of a big fan of that term. I know a lot of it was some of the patients came up with the term being a COVID-19 survivor who has these lingering effects. But some of the patients dealing with long COVID are not fans of the term. So I just usually use long COVID or PASC or post-COVID condition to describe patients that I have. Well, that's super helpful. And I didn't even realize that there were that many sets of terminology for it. And so many, um, it seems like overlapping, but different definitions. This would explain too why when I was trying to read there, there was, it seemed like varying, like sometimes it would say you have to have at least two months of symptoms. Maybe earlier on, they were saying they have to have three or more weeks of symptoms. Does it, does it matter that much? Like if someone's got a month or two of symptoms after a COVID infection, is is that is it okay for us to sort of think that they may be in one of these, you know, long COVID, post-acute sequelae? What do for you think? For sure. Okay. Yeah, I think, yeah, potato, potato, two weeks, four weeks, 27 days, 35 days. You know, okay. It's just, again, focusing it on the person and what are their symptoms validating their symptoms and figuring out how we can help them. I guess I just wonder how, from a science standpoint, we're defining our terms. You know, it seems like if you have such a large swath of the population affected by something, and then you have this huge array of symptoms and things that can happen after this large swath has been infected, how do you decide what is attributable to COVID? What is attributable to something else? Like, I think it's from a, and this might lead us down the path of physiology route, but I guess I'm, how are we determining what constitutes long COVID versus what is just illness that people get from living long enough or, you know, cause it's, it just, it's, I feel like it's kind of hard to tease things out when so many people have been affected at this point. I don't know how everything is directly attributable to COVID. So I feel like that has to muddy the waters. I don't even know if there was a question in there. Yes. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> Nailed it. Right. Yes. <laughs> I think they're trying to say 
know, were you sick related to COVID and it continues going on? Or did you have COVID and something occurred within the first you know, two months of having COVID oh, see, and then it may be related to COVID? Perfect. But I'm still with, uh, you know, part of these definitions are, and it's not related to something else. It's not explained by an alternative diagnosis. There's people that want to come in and say, it's long COVID. And I have to say, oh, you're saying you have stool changes, fatigue, your bowels are changing. You still need to have your regular care. And you've never had a colonoscopy. What if you have colon cancer and you're saying you have long COVID? You know, we have to be able to also say it's not an alternative diagnosis. So like I had a patient at Cashlack a couple of weeks ago who uh, had asymptomatic or, or mildly symptomatic breakthrough COVID and sees primary care two months later and says, I, I have a cough. They stop lisinopril, the cough goes away. Like I shouldn't be worried that he has residual symptoms from his COVID because there was a really readily available alternative explanation for a persistent cough after a COVID diagnosis. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you basically have to take stock of were any of these symptoms present before the illness? Um, if so, then then this is whatever was going on before the illness. But if they're new symptoms or if they're symptoms that per- have persisted since you were sick with COVID, then it, it could be that. Uh, it could be due to the, the viral infection they just had, the COVID-19 infection. But we have to think about whether or not something else could be going on that could explain it. Like, as Avi pointed out, they are on lisinopril and that's why they have a cough. Um, or they have they they need to be screened for uh, or they need a colonoscopy because they have GI symptoms and maybe something's going on in the colon that has nothing to do with the COVID-19 infection they had. And the other thing is get an exacerbation of something they may be at risk for just related to the inflammation with COVID. So if someone's kind of metabolic syndrome mm-hmm. is that an official term in internal metabolic medicine? Syndrome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, with an E at the end, with like the, syndrome E. I right. think you can coin it on the podcast. That, that would be right. fine. Yeah. Yes, ish, <laughs> ish. And then we're seeing a lot of people develop diabetes afterwards. You know, just is there inflammation and stress on the pancreas related to having COVID? Some patients who you know maybe borderline hypertension, and now they have hypertension that needs to be treated. So it's another kind of take and what I've seen with patients as well asthma that was probably controlled and now asthma is out of control going back to our patient. So speaking of inflammation, given that we are still less than two years from the earliest recognition of this syndrome, what do we know in, in, we're recording in December, 2021, what do we know about the the pathophysiology or, or the potential pathophysiology of long COVID? So it's a new thing, things that we're just learning about. And so we don't have definitive, this is exactly what the pathophysiology is. But we do know, of course, what's happening and the spike protein and ACE2 receptor. But we also know there is inflammatory, post-inflammatory cytokines. So there's inflammation in the system. And then we're still learning, you know, there's questions about, is there of viral persistence. Is it, you know, is there still part of the virus that is 
somewhere in the stub, you know, GI tract, whatever it might be, that is persistent. And so, you know, studies still looking at that, NIH still trying to fund studies to look at that. And the other thing that we're also looking at is what is happening to the body, the individual immune response. And that is a big thing with what type of response you have. What is your cytokine storm? Is it a short-term one? Is it a long-term one? Are you creating autoantibodies? That's another major thing. We're seeing a lot of abnormal autoantibodies as well in these patients. So one of those or all of them. Yeah, right. I was, and you may this may not be a fair question to ask, but I, is there something that's different about COVID? I remember early on, and I, I and I, again, I don't want to be dismissive of the the post-acute stuff, but I, I, I remember reading someone saying that actually virologists were sort of initially unsurprised, and they see that you see post-acute viral stuff all the time, but because we're seeing viral infections on a scale that's kind of unprecedented, happening simultaneously, we're kind of recognizing it more acutely. And I don't. I wish I could find the actual source for that. But I, I guess the question that leads me to, is there something different about COVID that this behaves differently than other viral infections that people are more predisposed to post-acute symptoms that happen and persist? Yeah, so great question. And uh, in one of my National Society meetings, we just had a point counterpoint. And I just happened to get on this, the side where is post-COVID just another post-viral sequela? And that Yes, it happens. Guess what? It happened with Ebola. It happened with SARS-CoV-1. It happened with, with MERS. It happens with, you know, other infections that people get all the time. This is not the first time that we've had patients with sequela viral illnesses. And, you know, I've taken care of plenty of patients with West Nile, West Nile virus sequelae and with thankfully not Ebola, but, you know, other infections that they've had. I knew how to take care of patients with POTS and dysautonomia because I've seen them in other conditions before. So it's not like this is the newest thing ever. I just think the sheer numbers is probably where it's, you know, bringing a lot of attention to people who had other post-viral illnesses who were suffering and didn't get as much attention as this is bringing. Before we leave the pathophysiology, I just wanted to ask you, is it controversial? Like, is there, are there different, like very strongly opposed schools of thought that this is more of a, just sort of like a, a psychosocial issue that, that it's not actually a biological phenomenon that's going on. I saw in the new England journal, there was an article by Phillips and Williams that was basically saying like, we, we need to not marginalize these people. We need to treat them, you know, with like utmost respect and investigate these things. And then there was another article in in the journal Lung that was saying that they were thinking this is more, we should really prioritize rehab and psychological support and really not emphasize diagnostics and like advanced testing that they didn't really think that this was more, that this was a true like, you know, pathophysiology that was was disrupted here. So I don't know if those are controversial thoughts and I'm asking from a place of, I'm not on either side. I'm just just asking. I think if you ask patients, they would say that they feel that they're being gaslit, that they feel that because of that, a lot of their testing is negative, that, you know, people are saying you're making it up. This is something that's in your head. You need to calm down. It's, we're all under social stresses. And I just think we probably don't have the right tests yet because a lot of the traditional stuff is going to be fine. And that's what makes it really difficult because you know, we have such wonderful tests in our wheelhouse that we love to use and rely on. Oh, we're going to get you pulmonary function tests. Oh, they're normal. Okay, you're fine then. 
oh, but did they, you know, look for a breathing pattern dysfunction, which, you know, physical therapy can work on? And, or did they use an ultrasound to look at their diaphragm and to see that their diaphragm's dysfunctional or it's thin or whatever it might be? Probably not, because that's not a traditional in our wheelhouse to use. Um, echoes, like, okay, let's do an EKG. Your EKG is fine, but I have palpitations and I feel so bad every time I sit up and stand up and I want to feel like I pass out. But your echoes also fine. You know, how many times do we do tilt table testing or know a place where they can get tilt table testing or know how to do autonomic testing for patients, which is often the problem, not a structural cardiac thing. What's been the model across the country? It seems like, you know, long COVID clinics are kind of start not popping up. That doesn't do it justice, but are being created. Um, Who owns this diagnosis? Is it primary care? Is it physiatry? Is it cardiology? And who's getting involved in this work? To me, it seems that there's been a lot of interdisciplinary stakeholders. I know it's been great that it has been interdisciplinary for sure. And, you know, I would love to say it's physiatry, but there's, you know, a need for more physiatrists. There's only so many of us to be able to handle certain work. But the reason I love that it's physiatry is that actually our field came out, one of the things that our field came out of was the polio epidemic because polio created so many people with new disabilities, people who needed braces, people who needed iron lungs. And this was especially in the South and Southwest where I'm from. So I like to think, all right, we're good at taking care of people in epidemics, and uh, but we're best doing it with a team approach. So I can't do everything. I don't understand every type of cardiac and pulmonary test or rheumatologic abnormality that may come out, et cetera. And so I think it's best done with a team approach. And I think it's just the places that are doing it, most of it's academic centers, and they're trying to work together with who they have. If there is physical therapy, then you want therapy involved. You want infectious disease specialists, internists, pulmonologists, cardiologists, neurologists, rheumatologists, physiatrists, all the above. Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the national bank for doctors by doctors. The average bank just isn't built for the healthcare community, and let's face it, they don't understand us. But at Panacea Financial, they get it because they have lived it. This bank was founded by two MedPeds physicians, and they are dedicated to providing solutions for the unique needs of doctors and doctors in training, including medical school loan refinance. Panacea's student loan refinance has low fixed rates that don't depend on your credit score, no maximum loan amount, and $100 per month payments while in residency or fellowship. And maybe you aren't looking to refinance your student loans, but do you know anyone who might be? Well, you can refer a friend to Panacea and they will pay you $250 for each referral. And guess what? There's no limit to how many people you can refer. So maybe this could be like another job for you. Join the growing number of doctors nationwide that expect more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit Panacea Financial today for more information on their student loan, refinance, and to learn about their Refer a Friend program. That's Panacea financial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC. We're sponsored today by Indeed. Audience, are you thinking about hiring somebody? Well, if you are, 
then you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. You're guaranteed to find quality applications that are going to meet your must-have requirements or else guess what? You don't pay, baby. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, combing through application, why don't you do it all in one place with one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all? Indeed is going to partner with you through every step of the hiring process and they have some great time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. And as soon as you sponsor a post, you're going to get a short list of quality candidates right away with resumes that match your post. Plus, you're only going to pay for the quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. And in medicine, we know it's been very hard to hire the people we need. So get on Indeed and find them. They're out there. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer is valid through March 31st. So go to indeed.com slash internal medicine to claim your $75 job credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. I want to ask about back to Miss Sarah S. Covey. She, so she's 45. We didn't really give you a lot of past medical history, but she had this mild case of COVID and now she's having all these multi-system complaints. Can you talk about like, are there certain patients or certain patient factors that make someone more predisposed to these symptoms? Do we know that yet or, or what you're seeing in your practice? It seems to be women, actually disproportionate women in their 40s. And that's what I'm seeing in my practice, but that's what a lot of people are seeing in their practice. And it's pretty interesting that we know that you know men may get the initial worst disease, so older people and men get initial worst COVID, especially hospitalized COVID. But when we look at long COVID, it is mostly women who are getting it. And you know, again, looking at immune responses and looking at IgG levels of their COVID antibodies afterwards. These are just, you know, studies that are starting to be done and that they may not have as robust response to creating the antibodies to COVID. And so that's one tie into it. But then the other thing that we know is who, what else happens to 40 year old women? They are also the ones who get autoimmune disease more than, you know, men or other populations. So again, there's the tie into what's happening to autoantibodies with. Is there long co- in long COVID? And what about is there a signal between the severity of the illness or whether or not they were vaccinated before they they got COVID? Does any of that seem to be important in how severe or in development of this long COVID? So definitely, severity matters, and a lot of the the thing is that the studies that are done are mostly done on hospitalized patients. So, you know, you have ones like, oh, six months hospitalized patients, one year hospitalized patients, you know, from Wuhan, they came out first because they had the disease mostly first. And, you know, with 70% or something still having symptoms. So those are patients who are hospitalized. And we know that patients, if you're hospitalized, you have severe disease, there is post-intensive care syndrome PICS that is already something we also knew about before the pandemic. And we know that hospitalized patients who were critically ill are going to have sequela you know, physical, mental, 
and psychological afterwards. But what is the interesting part is, and then there's only a certain percentage of the patients who are hospitalized. But the other interesting part is the ones who had mild to moderate disease who were never hospitalized. And there's still a percentage of the, those patients, you see, you know, something like 10%, even more, who are having long COVID, 30% in even one JAMA study that came out. Oh, and then, okay, finish answering the question. No, it's all coming back. <laughs> the part about vaccines, does vaccines help? And I think at first we didn't know, but now we know they do, but it doesn't protect you completely from long COVID. So you can still get a breakthrough infection and you can still get long COVID from a breakthrough infection, though in one study it was 50% less chance. So, you know, that's still wonderful chances. Still, please go get your vaccine if you're on the fence. And while we're on the subject of vaccines, I've I've heard mixed anecdotes that if you've had long COVID and got vaccinated, it got better, but then there's some, the converse might be true as well. Or is there a signal about effect of vaccination after you've manifested long COVID? Right. So I think if you're looking at both studies that were done by the patients who were affected by it the most, that in the mid 50s percentage feel that they feel better after the getting a vaccine. And there are maybe then the next largest percentage, 30 plus 40% feel probably the same. And then there is a small percentage of patients who then get worse after the vaccine. So I don't know who's going to be who. <laughs> yeah. So you're kind of rolling the dice, but overall, the numbers favor, you'd feel but at least please, the same, maybe better. Yes. It, it, I mean, if you're in the midst of long COVID, you know, but if yeah. You're in the midst of long COVID. Because the other thing is, if you get COVID, you can get COVID again, especially if you're not vaccinated. They make the lowest level of, you know, when we look at antibodies, you know, you've had COVID alone, lowest antibodies, and then vaccinated has the next highest antibodies. And then if you have COVID plus vaccinated, then you're like the super antibody person. And so those are the best ones. Well, not that I'm telling people to go get like- Yeah, don't get COVID on purpose. Don't go to a COVID party. Don't get COVID on purpose. If you had COVID, get vaccinated. (laughs) Right. But if you had COVID, go get vaccinated and have like super immunity. Right. So given what we know about, um, sorry, cut you off, Matt. Given what we know about misogyny in medicine and the challenges of women- sometimes getting a diagnosis. And you already talked about gaslighting or patients with long COVID feeling like they're experiencing gaslighting. Is that the women predominance? Is that setting us up for frustration with getting people diagnoses or or treatments? Yeah, it's that whole, you're hysterical. Mm-hmm. It's all in your head. You're just, you need to sleep. You're probably stressed. So a lot of people, women get that in general, but then, you know, there's other biases as well. So, you know, I have some patients that may be obese and I've had, they will say, well, the doctor just says it's because I'm overweight and I just need to lose weight. But before I was always this weight and I could walk, I could work, I could go three up flights of stairs, but now that I've had COVID, I can't. And so it's not, again, it's part of our, you know, fat bias that we have and, um, along with our sometimes misogynistic views. And so unfortunately, this is something that a diagnosis that that brings it out. And these people want to be heard. And they're being told, you know, oh, it, oh you're stressed. It's anxiety. It's depression. And I say, you know what? 
if I had this disease that no one understood and I'm having all these weird symptoms that no one can explain, I may develop anxiety. I may develop PTSD. And guess what? Neuroinflammation causes psychological psychiatric diseases like depression and anxiety. And PTSD goes with autonomic dysfunction because it's part of having like an increased sympathetic response as well. And we've seen that in other disease states or in, you know, people who have come back from wars and such. So Miss um, Sarah Covey, it, it's fortunate there's a long COVID clinic near her house. She gets referred in. She's being feels like she's being taken care of, taken seriously. Sounds like we've talked about POTS, we've talked about autonomic instability. What what would you do for her if she's coming to you with these post-COVID symptoms? Like what testing, what management? So again, if you're working with a multidisciplinary team, wonderful. You should still, anyone who has cardiovascular symptoms, you know, there are guidelines on what should be done for these patients, including, you know, often screening with troponin, getting an EKG. Some of them may need an echo. Okay, great. A lot of these patients, that's normal, normal, normal. And then you have to look at ones who may have POT syndromes, symptoms. So I really, you know, it's really easy to do, maybe we don't have formal tilt table testing, but even if I'm seeing someone, you know, I can check orthostatic vitals and what's happening when you're getting orthostatic vitals. I can do even just, you're sitting down, what's your heart rate? It's 80. I have them stand up. They wait for five minutes. This is like a poor man's tilt table test. Their heart rate goes to 130. Oh, guess what? That's pretty much a diagnosis of of POT. So they're meeting the criteria. If it goes up over 30 once they're up for you know five minutes, and so then I can start saying, all right, now what do we do to treat this condition? And then it's again a lot of education on. What exacerbates POTS? You know, things like standing for a long time. Okay, well, what can we do for that? Compression stockings, abdominal binders, really, really important, more than just the compression stockings alone. You're going to want to have them, you know, not get overheated. Usually they do better in the cool. You're going to want to tell them to eat small meals throughout the day, not just, you know, a few big meals because the big meals will just have all their blood go into their GI tract and then they're going to want to pass out instead of, you know, so small meals throughout the day. Occasionally um, patients will need to hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. So some may hopefully won't get to the point where some I've had to give IV fluids, but for the most part, you know, they can hydrate themselves with just, you know, keep a water bottle, drink two to three liters a day, don't dehydrate yourself. You know, then there's medications we can use as well, which would be, you know, some of the beta blockers, and then you have to be careful what selective versus non-cardiac selective, because if they have a shortness of breath and then you give them propranolol, they might get more short of breath. And so you might have to do something more cardiac selective for them. And then some might mean need midodrin if they're passing out when they're standing up. And it also depends on what other, you know, some patients may feel that they have tinnitus or internal vibrations or numbness and tingling and understanding that that's all autonomic as well. And so kind of telling, you know, even if you can tell patients, like, oh, guess what? That's related to your POTS. Or sometimes people with POTS have small fiber neuropathies. And so that's the kind of weird numbness and tingling and burning that you're feeling that, you know, we're not able to diagnose on regular electrodiagnostic testing. Like EMGs look at only large fiber nerves, not small fiber nerves. And then that helps some people feel better. 
Can I ask about a specific dose of some of the meds you mentioned, like beta blockers, mitadrine? Uh, do mm-hmm. how do you, you start those at the low dose lowest, and then just just kind of then... slowly go up? Mm-hmm. And then for the neuropathy, are you prescribing any medications for that? Yeah, you can, but sometimes they're not going to be wonderful. You know, you can do gabapentin, you can do pregabalin, and it just depends how they help. You know, some it, they may some benefit from, some may not get benefit from it. Mestinon is something that we occasionally also will use in in POTS patients, and it has helped some of my patients, especially ones that had that internal vibration feeling. And that's peridostigmine for... Mm-hmm. Yes, sorry, peridostigmine that okay. you usually use in, you know, myasthenia gravis. And... Wow. Paul, when this you say is you very usually new use. territory. <laughs> <laughs> this is very yeah. new territory. Yeah. No, all the time. I just There's no yesterday. usual for me and Paul yeah. in this one. Uh, I, I mean, speak for yourself. I yeah, cannot like candy. <laughs> Paul has a POTS clinic every <laughs> Thursday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> so, well, okay. So was this, was, yeah. this was a lot of stuff. So you said compression stockings. We're familiar with that. You said maybe ab- abdominal binders. Mm-hmm. Um uh, keeping hydrated beta blockers, you know, metoprolol, cardioselective beta blockers. We're familiar with that. Um, the abdominal binder. This is this is just they get this from buy it medical, on Amazon. Buy it on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, buy it on Amazon. All right. Well, that is quite a regimen, and I, I imagine just telling them that that some of this stuff is normal is and and giving a name to what they're experiencing is probably some of the therapy I would imagine. Yes. And that's one thing that these clinic visits take time because a lot of education, it's a lot of explaining inflammation and post COVID and what's happening. It's validating their symptoms. They want to know that other people are having the same types of symptoms they are, which, which they are, and that we can try to control things as much as possible. Yeah. And is there any role for like, like cardiac rehab or I feel like I've heard things about the role of physical therapy in long COVID clinics and um, endurance training, structured exercise um, training. Mm-hmm. So to tie back into occasionally these patients who have post COVID and, and POTS, there's a phenotype of them who will look very much like chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. And in those patients, you actually have to really, they have such significant post-exertional malaise. So it's important that you screen patients for PEM because, and that's the case where, you know, they try to do an activity where they feel good and they feel like they can do something. And then afterwards or the next day, they're knocked out. They may say, you know, I try to go for a walk because I felt good. And then I was spent two days in bed and I couldn't get out of bed PEM because those being- are the patients Post-exertional malaise? Is that what yes. you Okay. I just heard about malaise. this. I just heard a whole thing about this. My, I, my yes. brain is going like, oh my gosh, like I have an illness script for this. <laughs> yes. And so for them, it's really a lot of pacing. You can't give them a full, you know, traditional therapy exercise like you would for someone who is in the hospital and maybe had, you know, heart failure and needs cardiac rehab. No, these patients need really individualized education about prioritizing what they need to do, energy conservation, pacing themselves. And sometimes therapy can educate them on that. Monica, I had come across when I was prepping a a Royal College of Occupational Therapists. uh, They had a conserving energy web, you know, post. 
And it was like very much, it's like pace, plan, prioritize, and exactly the stuff you're talking about. So we can put that link in the show notes because I think it would be helpful for people to give to their patients, like when they're seeing them in clinic, like, right. you know, this is, some of this is common. And mentioning the chronic fatigue, myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ence- is it myalgic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. the the diagnostic criteria say like six months of symptoms and couldn't that, couldn't just having COVID put you at risk for developing that? Don't we think, I, th- I thought yes. maybe just like any major illness could then any you major... could just develop that afterwards, right? Exactly. So it's another, like we had talked about early, you know, per- post-viral people who got CFS, ME, maybe not all the time, but, you know, mono could cause it. And then some other just type of illnesses. And now we're seeing it in COVID and post-COVID. And so it's really important with those patients that the P's like, right. you know, not overdoing it. And, and so. And to round out the diagnosis for that. So it's like six, more than six months of symptoms. And then they have this post-exertional malaise, fatigue, the fatigue is very prominent and then they have cognitive symptoms. Can you, t- and like- they have, uh, it's, so the three main things, so it's the, the, you know, significant fatigue, the post-exertional malaise. And then the third one is that it, the sleep is bad. They're just insomnia. They can't sleep, non-restorative sleep. And then the extra two things, it's either cognitive and, or the autonomic dysfunction. Okay which a lot of these patients have. And I'm also going to put a plug in for, so in the PM&R journal, we put together a consensus statement for fatigue with a lot of the people from post-COVID clinics around the country, including multidisciplinary as well. So we have a lot of more recommendations related to fatigue. And- well, thank you for sharing that. We will definitely put that in the show notes. Well, I feel like we've learned a lot about the care needed for our our first case at Cashback. I'm going to pivot us to the second case, um, and hopefully we'll talk about other facets of long COVID. So um, our second patient at Cashback today is Mr. Pascal B. Fogg, who's a 60-year-old man who was diagnosed with COVID uh, early in summer, um, or sorry, summer 2021, so sort of probably during the Delta surge. His symptoms were mild. He didn't need the ER or PCP. So mild nasal congestion, had subtle loss of smell and taste for about three days. And actually his symptoms in retrospect were so mild that he didn't get tested at the time, but got tested and confirmed the diagnosis when his spouse also developed symptoms. And sadly, she had a very severe course, was in the ICU for a couple of months, including intubation and ECMO before passing away in October. So he's understandably had a really tough six months, mourning his wife, not sleeping well. It feels like he has brain fog. Initially, he just thought it was depression and being sleep deprived. But he's also stopped drinking coffee because he can't handle the taste. He's wondering if that's contributing to his energy levels. But now he's also worried he's handling her estate. He's back to work as as an accountant, and he just doesn't feel as mentally sharp. He's actually getting very nervous, very anxious that he might be developing dementia. Um, And he's like, I just can't handle another thing this year. Like, what else is going to happen to me? And he's heard about the local long COVID clinic at Cashlack through a local internet support group. And he's really optimistic that he might get some answers and help. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the neurocognitive or neuropsychiatric manifestations of long COVID. You did a little bit of um, setup with neuroinflammation uh, and psychiatric manifestations. Right. So definitely there are some of the top complaints have are neurologically related. So, you know, headache, 
up to almost half percent of uh, 40-ish percent of patients who might have headache afterwards, attentional disorder in another probably quarter of the patients. You have memory loss in, you know, 15 to 20% of the patients. The other big thing I will hear from patients, if you kind of probe about what their brain fog is exactly and, you know, what they're having cognitively is an anomia. So they really have a hard time finding words, simple words that they knew before. If you ask about them, it's almost universal that you'll hear that um, along with the attentional and then just some some memory farts with things that they should normally remember. I walk into a room, what was I going to do? And is that part of the memory or is that part of the attention? And if you think like even loss of smell and taste is a neurologic finding as well, you know, that's our cranial nerves. And that is also a good, you know, up to 15, 20% of patients that have that too. And so again, it goes with, as we're learning, you know, neuroinflammation, definitely there is disruption of the blood brain barrier. So I tell people, you know, you have inflammation through your system, your post-inflammatory cytokines, you have, there can be some, you know, the blood brain barrier can get leaky. Do these usually in, you know, inflammatory cells get past that which we're not used to having. There's a question if, you know, they're looking at, you know, postmortem with patients who pass, is there COVID in the brain? Is COVID just going to be hanging out in the brain like in other diseases where, you know, one day is it going to be like, ta-da, hopefully not. Um, you know, is the inflammation part of you know, causing inflammaging and going to be aging people a little bit faster. This is the, the scary part of the talk, right? Yeah, and this is, is not scary. what I, I it is scary. I don't <laughs> want to hear the word inflammaging. That that is yeah, not no, I, I do I mean, not that's a that's never happened actually. Yeah, no, <laughs> right. two thumbs down. <laughs> two thumbs down to inflammaging, but yeah. So uh, part of what I also tell people is, you know, here we have this inflammation. What is everything you can do to you know, I don't have a magic like whole body plasma phoresis where I can, you know, change your milieu and change all your cells and give you, take your spleen out or whatever it might be and give you a new thymus or something. So, you know, what can they do naturally to decrease inflammation in their system? And that is just, I think any doctor can tell a patient to do that, you know, eat healthy, eat the right kind of diet, control your other disease states that you have kind of thing. Yeah. Paul, does it ever, is it, it's like, uh, it's kind of morbidly funny that for just a lot of what we do in primary care, we're like, you got to take better care of yourself. And and like, there's, there's not like one silver bullet for like all these things. I, I mean, time, time is also, there's the great South Park episode where they joke about, he needs a time transplant. Maybe if we had more time, I, I, I think that does a lot of the work for us um, because we like, we don't have a silver bowl for these things. It's the, the, right. the Voltaire quote all over again is that medicine being yeah. the art of distracting the patient while they heal themselves. Like, yeah, we can, we can put on a dog and pony show, but a lot of it is just sort of the passage of time and, and right. getting better ideally. But Monica, mm -hmm. I think what you're saying too, is like, you, you don't want to do, you want to do everything you can so that this isn't more prolonged than it's going to be. Because right, right. now we don't have a, like necessarily have a specific thing we can do for this. Right. We just have to optimize everything we do have. If they're right. not sleeping, we need them to sleep. If they're snoring all night, we need to get them a sleep study so that they can get a CPAP and they can sleep. Are they just eating junk because they're too tired to cook? Then, you know, what can we do to ensure that they have access to better quality food that they're putting in their body? 
And so, and hurry up and wait. So are there analogies to be drawn, like based on right here, right now, what we know about the pathophysiology, are there analogies to be drawn to like post-ICU syndrome or post-concussive syndrome or, or other like post-stroke syndromes? Um, in, in our pre-recording, you, you dropped a, an interesting pearl that I promised I would prompt about cranial nerve one involvement with traumatic brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Right. So part of the reason why I got behind this was that, you know, I'm a brain injury doctor and my job before was taking care of these patients who had brain fog, memory issues, loss of smell and taste, because guess what? Cranial nerve is the most common nerve that's injured after a traumatic brain injury. Though, you know, in our notes, cranial nerves two through 12 intact, we never check one, but that's actually really affected in traumatic brain injury as it is in patients with COVID. And so I knew before what things you could do to treat patients who had dysfunction with, you know, loss of their smell and their taste. And so it's very, I thought it was very much like a post-concussive patient. And so we use, what are some of the things that we do there? And some of it is also a multidisciplinary approach. Like, do they need therapy because they're dizzy and they need vestibular rehab? Do they need speech therapy to work on some memory techniques to make up with what they lost? Do I need to treat their headaches because they have headaches? Yes, I will, you know, aggressively teach, treat their headaches. Do I need to make sure that they sleep because they can't sleep? Do they have concomitant psychosocial issues and psychiatric issues that need to be treated? Yes, I can, I can do all of that. So. So it sounds like a lot of this, I mean, most, I think most primary care doctors are pretty comfortable giving medicine to work, treating headaches or working up headaches. How often for, for things like brain fog or the memory or the tension problems, who should we be sending people to to help with those things? Is that an occupational therapist that you would recommend? Or are you recommending if we, I guess, I guess we could send them to a co, if we're lucky enough to have one of these long COVID clinics in our area, mm-hmm. probably that would all be included there. Right. So sometimes, you know, speech therapy. So speech therapy isn't just about swallow or your ability to say words, but also just, you know, the techniques for people to help help them, you know, remember things or also to kind of do a little bit more assessment. Occasionally, I have a neuropsychologist that's in my clinic, and I can refer for someone who needs maybe more testing or needs some accommodations for their work, or we may work, you know, worry about someone having to be put on disability, especially depending on what the job was that they did before. And so again, using the team that I have. And any practical tips for patients um, as far as just like the memory or the brain fog before, you know, there may be a delay if they see us in clinic, anything we can start to tell them in that visit to that they might do just to help mitigate some of what they're experiencing? Mm-hmm. So one good thing that's a reminder is that, you know, cognitive activity is more fatiguing than physical activity. I said our brain is the most metabolic organ in our in our body. That's why, you know, why after a code, you want to, you know, do CPR right away so they get blood to their brain, right? Mm-hmm. And um, because of that, they have to also realize that, you know, they may have been off for physical reasons, and then someone goes back to work, and they fail at work, because now they have to start thinking and using their brain and processing and using their frontal lobes and doing, you know, multiple things at once. And then that's when they really get post-exertional malaise and can't get back to work. And so sometimes you have to, for someone to be really successful, 
I may have to have them do a like graduated return to work program, almost like you would do for someone after a concussion where, Mm -hmm. okay, you can't like just go right back and play. You have to first do this program over a week until they clear you from the protocol. The same thing, you know, if someone's going back to work, well, only go three times a week and then see how you do. And then, okay, then now you did that for a couple of weeks and go back more. And so that's one thing. And then the other thing is, again, optimizing brain health, like we talked about. But again, if neurologic evaluation, if there is something else that's off, then they may need more imaging or they may need, you know, to see neurologist or a brain injury physiatrist. So. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, this so reminds me of, of uh, high powered professionals I know who've had really rocky course, a really frustrating course after a concussion, you know, physically they felt fine, but they're just so frustrated that they don't feel like themselves or they can't work the same 10 hour day that they used to. Um, I feel like, um, I've seen, I've read some really fascinating things. Again, getting back to the interdisciplinary team, the role of um, ENT physicians in um, recovering smell and taste. Uh, There was uh, an article, and I can put the link in the show notes, about opera singers um, helping with elements of long COVID and uh, Mm post-COVID recovery. I think there was something that I see. I don't know if I saw this. Maybe I'm making this up. Um, Like sommeliers doing... Um, mm. smell sounds, training. Sign me up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's smell, one thing that you not taste training, just smell training. I've, that seems like a ripoff if a sommelier is just like letting you smell the wine, but not taste it. So hopefully exactly. it was both. Right. Well, can we yeah, talk I, about taste and smell? I, I, I'd be curious if you have any tips, Monica, for the, the patient that's suffering from loss of taste and smell. And it's been, let's say it's been months. I I've met some patients personally and in clinic that have, have really lost taste and smell for, for months and they're starting to be worried it will never come back. Right. And we don't know. And don't tell someone like, it's never going to come back because they don't like to hear that either. And don't tell them it's better if you started smell training in the first six weeks, though that's true. We don't want, you know, we still want to encourage them to do it. So, you know, whenever you see them, you can, you know, there's different websites, there's different little kits and, you know, they can start working on smell training. The other thing is sometimes also, you know, intranasal steroids will help with that as well. And so I will occasionally give patients intranasal, you know, okay, do intranasal steroids while you're doing smell training. And then the other thing is, you know, if their taste is off, and sometimes they'll go through this, like no taste to a little bit of taste to then it's dysquesia, where it's like, it tastes bad, where, you know, food that usually was appetizing now tastes like, you know, they'll, they'll say something, it tastes like sewage. Well, I hope you don't know what sewage tastes like. But, um, you know, is there a way that they figure out how they can flavor it so that way it may be more appetizing to them? And then the other thing is just watching their weight. If they, if it, you know, food tastes bad or they lose their, their taste and then they don't eat, then that might put someone at risk for malnutrition. I wanted to ask for a friend of mine, maybe let's say his name is Paul. Um, he's not exactly sure what smell training is. So could you just, for his benefit. Could you tell us what that might look like in practice? So it looks like you usually have someone get four types of different smells or it's usually essential oils and you practice for 15 or 30 seconds in each nostril, smelling the scent and then making the mental imagery too, 
with it. So if it's a lemon smell, then you should be trying to smell it and making in your head a picture of a lemon. And that's supposed to help. Uh, And then you go through your next smell and, you know, you do this a couple of times a day for a set period of time. So you obviously have to be familiar with these smells in order to do the mental imagery of what it's going to smell like. If if you've never smelled like <laughs> I don't know, rosemary <laughs> or seen yeah, one, sure. then you may not. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I might be in trouble. I, I think I have lemons and stuff, but if people are like naming flowers and you know what lilac smells Waffles. like, right? I'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm Avi. I, I don't know what truffles smell like. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what they taste like. Thank goodness for, uh, can, can I say, make a plug for Trader Joe's like truffle powder? I don't know. Yeah, that, of course. Of course. Okay. So that, that seems very, and that seems like something, I guess, even if they're waiting to get in to see uh, an otolaryngologist or uh, someone else that's going to help them with this, they could, they could even try to start doing something like that at home on their own, taking the intranasal steroids. And then you said, of course, we have to watch their weight. I, another, another fun resource that I found that people can give to patients and maybe Monica, you have another, was another UK website. And this was fifthsense.org. And uh, they had safety advice. Um, I was telling Paul about this ahead of time. They had safety advice and also some hygiene advice. They're like, yeah, like have have a friend or someone you trust that can smell food for you, but also they can smell you and tell you if you smell because you can't smell yourself, <laughs> which I thought was, I, I thought that was just delightful. Um, yeah, they have an absent Oh, website okay. absent.org that okay. also has kind of instructions oh, on smell funny. training but it is you also have to educate people you know if you can't smell but you know i work i live in texas where sometimes there's refineries nearby and you work in a refinery well then guess what you better make sure that there are alarms working and in your home that your fire alarms are working and just to be safe your carbon monoxide alarm is working even though you can't smell carbon monoxide yeah yeah, I thought that I thought those were all just really like practical and fascinating things and things that, you know, as someone who's privileged enough to still be able to smell things right now, I I never would think about those things. Um so so you tell people how how what does it sound like when you counsel a patient about that? Like when you when you tell them the, about the potential prognosis. Like if someone's like uh doctor, I'm I'm worried I'm never going to smell or taste anything again. How do you you know, put them at ease. So it's just one of the, we don't know. These are some of the things that you can try if you're having altered taste or smell. And, you know, I'll leave you the website and you know, explain to a little them about what smell training is and what they can do to be safe and try to figure out, you know, what flavors they have, kind of educate them a little bit about, you know, what can we, how can we make food appetizing to you so that you are eating something. And uh, yeah, just kind of reassurance and education on what we know. There are some studies where they're actually trying to look at see if ginkgo biloba might help with smell come back. There's some clinicaltrials.gov. So some patients may try that supplement. You know, we don't know what the outcome is on that. But. Okay. So something I wanted to ask about, we we had touched on, I think, you know, mood and PTSD as maybe a component of the post-acute COVID syndrome. I also think it has to be hard to tease out from the fact that we've all lived through what is an ongoing national tragedy to some extent. We've we've lost people that we've loved or we've had patients who have lived folks that they love. So there, there's there's a lot of collective trauma that's happening right now, I guess is what I'm saying. And I, I think, as Matt alluded to, a lot of primary care doctors are comfortable dealing with that to some extent. 
but I, I wonder if you if you couldn't help me out in terms of you know I think we mentioned support groups briefly, but if you could just talk us through some of the resources available to our patients for emotional support um, and sort of peer support as they're also in this recovery period. Right. So thank you, primary care physicians to, who are comfortable in doing so many things and taking care of our patients. And you're right. And some of it is a sequela of long COVID and some of it is a sequela of living in 2020 and 2021 and now 2022, right? Oh, don't drag 2022 and, into this. I still, I still have hope for it. Okay, right. <laughs> and, this will air in 2022, Paul. <laughs> and so I think Screening patients, we screen all our patients with, you know, PHQ2s or PHQ9s and just kind of looking for any red flags or symptoms and then being able to ask certain questions or make referrals to psychology. There is a an app called COVID Coach, and that app is a free app that's made by the VA and the DOD. They have a lot of resources for patients with COVID related to mental health, some relaxation, some breathing, you know, just different types of helpful evidence-based things that that they've used before in in veterans and in military. And then there is social media groups that some of these patients with long COVID have found as being good supports for them. And, you know, they have different ones all through, you know, Facebook groups and also through the web. And so and certainly I will encourage some patients to get in those. Sometimes patients will say it's really depressing getting on those. So then maybe they need to find their own local support group or they need a referral to a counselor, behavioral health specialist or a psychiatrist in some cases. I, f- I feel like I've also heard about patients for, for all the potential gaslighting and feeling like they're not being taken seriously, that there is also a very strong component of the patient voice, including in the creation and implementation of some of the long COVID clinics that have that have gotten themselves off the ground. As well as the research. So they have Ooh. like patient-led collaborative. And these are people who themselves had long COVID who were otherwise in, you know, careers where they maybe knew stats or did research. And, you know, then they're getting the information firsthand from all these survivors. And they're some of the ones that have come up with a lot of good research on long COVID. So it's wonderful that, you know, the patients have been able to come together and really push the agenda for us. And I think, you know, we have more and more of, okay, we have an idea. We know what the symptoms are now. Now we need to figure out the scientific pathophysiology and treatments. We really need treatments. And speaking of the patients suffering from this, there's going to be patients asking for us to fill out forms to help with short-term disability or longer-term disability. What's the status of that? Do you have any tips? How, how's that being handled right now? So I do it. It's probably the most, the second most important thing you can do. First is, you know, validation and, and helping them get treatments. And then the second thing is, you know, what is the support for either work accommodations or disability? And, you know, knowing you have to keep things in mind that patients need time to recover, that they can get relapses. So sometimes for FMLA, you may have to say that this could be a chronic condition and they may have to have relapses and take time off from work. Again, like I had said, what's going to push them to, you know, have a relapse is going to be, again, working, stress, pushing themselves too much, the post-exertional malaise. So, you know, 
again, like I had said about the really graduated return to work. I had one patient where she said, well, I started doing part-time at home and then I could, you know, build that up to going to the office a couple times. And guess what else I did for her? I gave her a handicap placard so that way she wouldn't have to walk you know, a whole length of the parking lot. And by the time she got into work, she was too exhausted to do work. And I know sometimes we want to see someone being really physically disabled before giving them a handicap placard. But for patients like this, we, you know, really need to know energy conservation. And that is, you know, taking fewer steps so that they can get into office and work. Of course, this ties back into um, no social determinants of health. Some people don't have work that they can do from home. Some people have to have a work where they're they're standing on their feet all day and they have autonomic dysfunction. And so those patients maybe need dis- more long-term disability accommodations. So I, I think we're going to have to go to take-home points here. We've, we've talked through a ton of stuff today. Um, we talked, we started off talking about more of the cardiovascular fatigue symptoms. Then we started talking about the neurocognitive symptoms and ended up talking about disability but out of all that great stuff that we talked about, can you give us like two or three favorite take-home points that you really want to make sure the audience remembers from this talk? Believe patience. So, you know, really kind of make sure that you're providing support, that you're, you know, telling them that this is a condition, this is something other patients have, that you believe that they're suffering, don't blow them off. So that goes a long way you know, providing the education and, you know, trying to do what you can. So not just like, there's nothing we can do, give it a, give it a year, we'll see what happens. But, you know, using your interdisciplinary team to try to do as much as you can for the patient, even if that means giving them some work accommodations or giving them, you know, a referral to a support group or to a behavioral health counselor or to physical therapy. Okay. Well, we will we will fade this to the outro. Thank you so much for, for well, all your great you teaching. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. I was happy to be here. It's a very famous podcast. So. <laughs> you're you're certainly exaggerating, but we appreciate it. Thank <laughs> like you. Like the most niche <laughs> way possible, but yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Wanted to give a special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Avital Oglasser, and to our whole team. Beth Garbs Garbatelli is our executive producer and runs our Twitter. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. So with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Avital Yehudit Oglasser. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>